Welcome to the end of innocence, the JFK assassination. I'm your host, John Young. In last week's episode, we look at some of the witness statements from Dealey Plaza, including several who saw Secret Service agents on the grassy knoll immediately after the shooting of JFK. So-called Secret Service agents were deterring people away from the grassy knoll and the picket fence area. Several law enforcement officers, such as Joe Marshall Smith, Deputy Constable Seymour Weitzman, and D.V. Harkness, all ran into so-called Secret Service agents on the grassy knoll after the shooting of JFK. Other witnesses like Gordon Arnold, Malcolm Summers, Gene Hill, and Mary Mormon had encounters with men claiming to be Secret Service agents on or around the grassy knoll. What's the big deal, you say? You would expect to see Secret Service agents in and around Dealey Plaza with the President's motorcade coming through. But the problem is, the record shows there were no Secret Service agents or any federal agents of any kind stationed in Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination. They were all with the motorcade. So there were people impersonating Secret Service agents. Why? In the 35 years I've been studying and researching this case, I've interviewed hundreds of witnesses. Everyone from Secret Service agents to Dallas police officers to just ordinary citizens who were present in Dallas at the time of the assassination. But there's one man that I wish I could go back in time and interview. That man is Lee Bowers. Unfortunately, me and many other researchers never got the chance to interview Mr. Bowers as he mysteriously died in a car wreck on August 9, 1966. Lee Bowers' testimony is perhaps as explosive as any recorded by the Warren Commission. He was one of 65 known witnesses to the President's assassination who thought shots were fired from the area of the grassy knoll. But more than that, he was in a unique position to observe some pretty strange behavior in the knoll area during and immediately before the assassination. Here's his story. Lee Bowers, then a towerman with the Union Terminal Company, was stationed in his 14-foot tower directly behind the grassy knoll. As he faced the assassination site, he could see the railroad overpass to his right front. Directly in front of him was a parking lot, and then a wooden stockade fence and a row of trees running along the top of the grassy knoll. The knoll sloped down to the spot on Elm Street where Kennedy was killed. Police had cut off traffic into the parking area, Bowers said, so that anyone moving around could actually be observed. Bowers made two significant observations, which he revealed to the commission. First, he saw three unfamiliar cars slowly cruising around the parking area in the 35 minutes before the assassination. The first two cars left after a few minutes. The driver of the second car appeared to be talking into a mic or telephone. He was holding something up to his mouth with one hand, and he was driving with the other. A third car, without a state plates and mud up to the windows, probed all around the parking area. Bowers last remembered seeing it about eight minutes before the shooting, pausing just above the assassination site. He gave detailed descriptions of the car and the drivers. Bowers also observed two unfamiliar men standing on top of the knoll at the edge of the parking lot within 10 to 15 feet of each other. One man, middle-aged or slightly older, fairly heavyset in a white shirt, fairly dark trousers. Another younger man, about mid-twenties, in either a plaid shirt or a plaid coat or jacket. Both were facing toward Elm and Houston, where the motorcade would be coming from. They were the only strangers he remembered seeing. 
His description shows a remarkable similarity to Julianne Mercer's description of two unidentified men climbing the knoll. We covered Julianne Mercer's testimony a few episodes ago. When the shots rang out, Bowers' attention was drawn to the area where he had seen the two men. He could still not make out the one in the white shirt. Bowers states, quote, The darker dressed man was too hard to distinguish from the trees, end quote. He then says he observed some commotion at that spot. He goes on to say, quote, Something out of the ordinary, a sort of mulling around which attracted my eye for some reason, which I could not identify, end quote. At that moment, he testified, a motorcycle policeman left the presidential motorcade and roared up the grassy knoll straight to where the two mysterious gentlemen were standing behind the fence. The policeman dismounted, Bowers recalled, then after a moment climbed on his motorcycle and drove off. Later, in a film interview with attorney Mark Lane, he explained that the commotion that caught his eye may have been a flash of light or smoke. His information dovetails with what other witnesses observed from different vantage points. Here's Lee Bauer's interview with author and researcher Mark Lane. According to Penn Jones Jr., the editor of the Texas Mythologian Mirror, Bowers received death threats after giving evidence to the Warren Commission and Mark Lane. On August 9, 1966, Lee Bowers was killed when his car left the road and crashed into a concrete embankment in Mythologian, Texas. It was later reported that Lee Bowers was heading west on Highway 77, heading from Mythologian down to Claiborne and according to an eyewitness, he was driven off the road by a black car. The car drove him into this embankment, but he didn't die immediately. He held on for four hours, and during that time, he was talking to the ambulance people and told them that he felt he had been drugged when he stopped for a coffee break there a few miles back in Mythlonian. Mr. Bowers, what is your present occupation? I'm vice president of Lockwood Medicine Incorporated, which is a real estate land development company. And where were you employed on November 22nd? 1963. At that time, I was employed as a tower operator for the Union Terminal Company. And where were you at about 12.30 that day? I was at the uh, south end of the uh, terminal of the tower building, uh, rather, looking down toward the terminal and observing the motorcade as was everyone else in the area. Could you tell us what you heard and what you saw from about 12 noon until the time that the shots were fired? Well, for some time that morning, since uh, perhaps 10 o'clock in the morning, we had had the area pretty well sealed off, and uh, the policemen had been uh, stationed on the triple underpass as well as other strategic corners in the area, uh, so that there was very little traffic moving into this area at this time. This is a dead-end area, which is used primarily for parking. Uh, after 11 or 11.30, there was practically no movement in the area whatsoever. Uh, however, about uh, 12.10, give or take five minutes, there was a car which entered the area and probed around for some time. Uh, this car was a 59 Oldsmobile station wagon with a out-of-state uh, license. It uh, was muddy as if it had just come in off of the road from some area where it was a red sandy area. Uh, it uh, was occupied by one male who spent... Uh, three or four minutes in the area uh, looking it over and then, uh, as he found out, left by the entrance, which is the only way in and out of the area at that time. Not uh, too long after that, perhaps uh, five or six minutes, a car of a totally different description also occupied by one male entered the area. Now, this man uh, performed a similar action and he toured down around the area probing to examine the exits and uh, 
seen that uh, one or more occasions to have a mic or something resembling uh, such an instrument up to his face. Just a few moments after that, the third car uh, came into the area, and these were the only three cars that uh, entered this area during this uh, specific period. The third car was a 61 or 2 Chevrolet. Uh, this car was uh, muddy all the way up to the windows as if it had just come in off the road. It had an out-of-state license, of the identical to the first car of the series. And it also had political stickers on it, which were not only for the same uh, candidate, but were identical in nature and color, uh, so that they appeared to have been from the same group. This also, this car was occupied by uh, one male uh, who spent a little bit more time in the area than the others and uh, probed down by the side of the tower where I was located. Uh, I could not state that these cars left the area entirely because after they got back onto the extension of Elm Street in front of the school depository building, they were lost to my vision so that uh, they could have remained uh, very close. Immediately after the shots were fired, there, uh, of course, was a uh, mass confusion, put it mildly, uh, but the area was immediately sealed off by, uh, I would say, at least 50 police within three to five minutes. Um, the first one to appear on the scene, other than those who, of course, who were standing around, uh, including two on top of the triple underpass, was one who rode a motorcycle up the incline coming up from the lower portion of Elm Street. And he rode perhaps two-thirds of the way up or more before he deserted his uh, motorcycle. Uh, at the time of the shooting, uh, in the vicinity of where the two men I've described were, there was a flash of light or an there was something which occurred which caught my eye in this immediate area on the embankment. And what this was, I could not state at that time, and at this time I could not uh, identify it other than there was some unusual occurrence, a flash of light or smoke or, or something, uh, which uh, caused me to feel like something out of the ordinary had occurred there. In reading your testimony, Mr. Bowers, it uh, appears that just as you were about to make that statement, you were interrupted in the middle of the sentence by the commission counsel, who then went into another area. Uh, well, uh, well, that's, that's correct. Um, I was there only to tell them what they asked, and uh, so that when they seemed to want to cut off the conversation, I felt like that was, uh, as far as I was concerned, that was the end of it. Mr. Bowers, how many shots did you hear? There were three shots, and these were spaced... Uh, with one shot, then a pause, and then two shots in very close order, such as perhaps uh, almost on top of each other, while there was some pause between the first and the second shots. Did you tell that to the Dallas police? Uh, yes, I, I told this to the police, and then uh, also told it to the uh, FBI, and also I had a discussion uh, two or three days later with them concerning this, and uh, they... Uh, made no comment, um, other than the fact that uh, when I stated I felt like the second and third shots could not have been fired from the same rifle, uh, they um, reminded me that I wasn't an expert and uh, I had to agree. If you haven't figured it out yet, you soon will. 
The Warren Commission wasn't interested in any witness that told a story that differed from their official version of the events that happened on November 22, 1963. A glaring example of that is that they didn't even interview the most important witness to the assassination, Ed Hoffman. While I never got the chance to interview Lee Bowers about what he saw on November 22, 1963, I did have the pleasure of spending a lot of time with our next witness, Ed Hoffman and his wife Rosie. Ed and I hit it off from the moment we met back in 1997. We had a unique bond because of circumstances that life had thrown at both of us. You see, Ed Hoffman was deaf since birth, and as is common with that disability, he could not speak. I grew up with a younger brother who could not speak, so being able to communicate with someone who could not talk just came natural for me. I'd been doing it most of my life with my younger brother. So when it come to being able to communicate with each other, Ed and I didn't have the hurdles that he had with some other people. Ed Hoffman is without a doubt the single most important witness to the JFK assassination, and you're about to hear why. And let me just state from the outset that Ed Hoffman's claims are adamantly denied by Warren Report defenders, and there's a reason for that. Because if what Ed Hoffman said is true, and I believe with all my heart that it is, his testimony would single-handedly destroy the notion that Oswald acted alone. What you're about to hear next is the best retelling of Ed Hoffman's story that I've ever heard on tape. It's from two fellow researchers who probably knew Ed better than I did. Casey Quinlan and Brian Edwards wrote the book Beyond the Fence Line, the eyewitness account of Ed Hoffman and the murder of President John F. Kennedy. Even though I spent a lot of time with him and had many conversations after this, my last recorded interview with Ed was in 2002 when I sat down with Ed and his interpreter, which also happened to be his pastor. It was kind of before the digital age, so it was done with a handheld cassette recorder, so the quality's not very good. But what I was able to do was to go back and listen to Brian and Casey's retelling of Ed's story and compare it to the one that I was told from Ed himself. They match up perfectly. Here's Ed Hoffman's incredible story, told by Casey Quinlan and Brian Edwards. Ed worked at Texas Instruments in North Dallas, and on the morning of the assassination, having a morning break, his habit was to get soft drink with some ice on it. Well, he was while he was chewing the ice, he broke one of his molar teeth, and it was causing severe pain, and, and he asked his supervisor if he could go to his dentist, which was in Grand Prairie on the other side of Dallas. And so he was given permission, and Ed got in his car and was driving from Texas Instruments. And as he got closer to Dealey Plaza, he saw people standing on the sides of the roads with placards and said, Welcome, JFK. And so that's when he remembered that President Kennedy was coming to town, but had not paid attention to it because he had to work and he wasn't going to be able to go to see the parade or whatever. And so he pulled into Dealey Plaza and thought, Well, while I'm away from work, I'll stop and watch the parade. Ed drove down Elm Street and out onto Stemmons Freeway and saw cars parked along the side. He parked along the, the breakdown side of the highway and was walking back towards the uh, overpass on Stemmons Freeway. The president's car went down, it went west on Elm Street underneath the triple underpass and then proceeded to get out on the Stemmons. Well, the entrance ramp onto Stemmons. Ed was sitting above that on the side of the road. And, of course, being a deaf person, the, the traffic zipping by at 55 or 60 miles an hour didn't bother him. So he had a, a bird's eye view, basically, of the of the entrance ramp and a unobstructed view to the east of the, the picket fence area in the parking lot and the railroad tower and the west side of the book depository. 
he said he got to that location about 12 o'clock, and a few minutes after he got there, he noticed a, uh, a car driving into the parking lot. Of course, you know, he didn't pay any attention to it, except the fact that it looked like it was looking for a parking space. And it drove around and then left. And then a few minutes later, another car came in, drove around and then left. A whole different car, uh, drove around the parking lot. And his by then, Ed's attention was to the area behind the picket fence. And he said he saw a man with a suit coat or a suit and a sports coat and a fedora-style hat. Everybody wore hats back. All the men wore hats back in the 60s, I guess. And then he said he saw another man dressed what he assumed was a railroad worker. He had coveralls or overalls of some type standing by one of the railroad switch boxes. And at some point before the president's car showed up, these two men met, you know, stood, stood close to each other. But obviously at that distance, about 200 yards or so, he couldn't tell what they were saying because he's deaf and he wouldn't be able to hear what they were saying anyway. But he said these two men obviously knew each other, and they separated, and the man wearing the coveralls or the overalls went and stood back by the railroad switch box, and the other man with the suit and the hat went back along the uh, to the area, the picket fence area, and he basically said he was pacing back and forth for the longest time. And then about 12.25 or so, a car came into the parking lot, a Rambler station wagon, and it parked by the railroad tower. Lee Bowers was working in the railroad tower at that time, and he said that car parked right on the right on the side of that. And he remembered what kind of a car it was because his good friend had one exactly like that. So this man with the suit and the hat, at some point, Ed looked over and he saw the man standing at the fence, and he held a rifle was holding a rifle and pointing it towards Elm Street. Now, Ed's elevation where he was at, he could not see Elm Street, but he could see the picket fence and the parking lot and the railroad tower and the west side of the book depository. But because of the elevation, he couldn't see the car coming down Elm Street. He said he saw a puff of smoke come from where this man in the suit and the hat was standing and assumed that the man was smoking a cigar. And then when the man at the fence turned towards uh, Ed's direction, he said he saw the man holding a rifle across his chest. And the man sprinted down the fence line, stopped suddenly, and tossed the rifle with both hands underhanded to the man who stepped around from the railroad switchbox, the man he had seen earlier in the brown out fit or the overalls or the coveralls, he said that man caught it, stepped back to the uh, railroad switch box, bent over and took the weapon apart in two different pieces, one in each hand, put it in a soft type of canvas bag and walked rapidly out of the area towards the uh, railroad track. The man who tossed the rifle that Ed saw thought was smoking a cigar walked casually back towards the fence line when he was encountered at gunpoint by a uniformed Dallas police officer. He saw the police officer pull his gun out, point it right at the man's chest, and he said the man with the suit coat and this fedora-style hat reached in his coat or his lapel pocket or his pants pocket or something and pulled out at something to show the officer who he was or, or what he was. And the officer put his gun back in his holster, and they went their separate directions. Now, the limousine and the follow-up car and all the rest of the motorcaders coming up Stemmons Expressway on the entrance ramp, and Ed looked down in the car, said he could see Mrs. Kennedy. He didn't realize who they were until he saw them, but he said that it was Mrs. Kennedy in the, in the pink outfit. She was on her knees, facing the back of the car, on the floorboard, and the president was lying face down in the car, and the back of his head was all gone, basically. And he said there was a man on the back of the car, and that was Clint Hill, and 
he said the car sped up and took off. So Ed, uh, in an effort to try to, uh, you know, raise the alarm that something was wrong, was running towards his car. And he remembered there was a police officer standing on the railroad overpass of Stimmons Freeway where he parked his car. And he was trying to get this man's attention. As he was running, he was waving his arms, trying to get the officer's attention. And he said the next car that came up the ramp was the follow-up car. And one of the agents, he didn't know who they were, but he said one of the people in the back of the car pulled out a rifle and pointed it right at Ed as he was running parallel to the entrance ramp. So Ed said he stopped immediately, which was probably a good thing that he did. And the rest of the motorcade sped up and got on the highway and Ed got to his car got on the highway because they had closed off the highway to allow the motorcade to get free access to the road. Ed got in his car, went up Continental Avenue, and drove around behind the picket fence trying to find this man. But uh, he never did. And so he went on to his doctor's office, you know, went to the dentist and told the dentist, you know, through sign language or written down form of some kind that, that he'd seen the president been shot. And according to what he told us, that the dentist had no idea what he was talking about because he was working with patients all morning. And Ed said the dentist stepped out of the office and came back a few minutes later. And apparently he turned on the radio and the, that's all the news was covering was the president had been shot. And Ed said, well, I, I already saw that. I was down there. And so the doctor was the first person he had told. After he got through the dentist, he went to his family-owned floral shop in Grand Prairie, and his dad had wondered, why, why are you here? And he said, well, I saw the president get shot. And he said, well, don't, you know, let the police handle it and let it go. So basically, Ed was told not to tell anybody because it's not, it wasn't any of his concern. So that's basically the thumbnail sketch of what Ed saw that day. He said he got so angry when he watched television, and then every time he said they'd show that building, the Texas School Book Depository, or they'd show Lee Harvey Oswald, Ed said he got so mad, he said, well, the building had nothing to do with it, and I don't know who that guy is. That isn't the guy I saw shoot the rifle. So it, it was it was real frustrating to hear his story, but I'm glad we got it on the record. Ed, his uncle, was a police officer and got a hold of the family during Thanksgiving uh, when they came over, and Ed was excited to tell his story to him. and. He did, and at the same time, it scared his mother, it scared his family, and Ed was kind of scared at the same time, too, but he felt that he had something important to tell, and he wanted to tell the police. So he told his uncle, and his uncle basically told him that, I think you need to keep quiet on this, and then kind of did the same thing with, with mom and dad and everybody there, that, you know, you need to keep him quiet. But uh, we happened to get a hold of his uncle, and his uncle said he was very credible. He said Ed would never lie. And so he believed him 100% that when he said that he saw somebody behind the picket fence fire a, a rifle and then run down the fence line and dump, dump the rifle off, so his uncle verified to us that, that he believed Ed 100%. In fact, uh, when I talked to uh, the uncle, he was a, uh, a detective in the auto theft unit. I said, well, did you talk to Ed at Thanksgiving? He says, oh, yeah. He says, we went over there, and he was all excited about telling me something. And, of course, now you got to remember, Ed is a deaf mute. His father is not. So Ed would sign the story to his father, and then the father would tell the uncle verbally. And then, you know, any questions that would come through would have to come through Ed's father and they had to sign it. To, you know, there's always the loss in translation ability or capability. But the bottom line is when I asked him, did Ed tell you the story? Oh yeah. He told me the whole story. I said, did you believe him? He said, oh yeah. Eddie would never lie about something like that. I said, did you tell anybody at the police department? He says, no, because we were afraid for Eddie's life. Something would happen to Eddie. So I didn't tell anybody. 
So Ed's story, and only a few people knew about it, some people at work where Ed worked at Texas Instruments, the family knew about it, his wife knew about it, and nobody followed up on it until 19, was it 1967, when uh, one of the uh, Texas worker, his supervisor or friend of his at Texas Instruments said, you need to tell somebody, because this is an important, even though it's five years after, four years after the case, you still need to tell somebody. So they made arrangements for Ed to go to the FBI office in Dallas and uh, tell the story. Well, either the FBI, and I, I don't know who to blame, but they knew if they took the appointment that they were going to be talking to a deaf person, but they had nobody there to interpret. So Ed had to basically draw what he remembered, how the plaza was laid out and where he was and basically told the story to Udo Speck, the first FBI agent he, he spoke to. We know that Udo Speck wrote a report. We can't find that report anywhere in the archives. According to what Ed said, Agent Speck and him went out to Dealey Plaza, and the FBI agent took color slides of the area, and we've never seen those pictures ever. It didn't go anywhere. I mean, in the House Senate Committee on Assassinations in 1976, nobody ever mentioned Ed Hoffman. Nobody ever said, well, let's see what his story is or never called him to testify. And he was still alive and nobody ever did anything. So it tells me that the FBI either dropped the ball on purpose or it was just thought of it's another another kooky witness came forward. And so we'll just put it in the kooky file. So. But Ed, Ed was frustrated. I mean, he, you could tell his frustration because he never read the Warren report. He never read the 26 volumes. He didn't want to have waste time on that. He knows what he saw, and that's all he could, all he would ever be able to testify to. The facts that he saw, the things that he saw, the observations that he made behind the picket fence were all verified. And we went through that meticulously to verify: Did he see a police officer confront somebody? Did this railroad station wagon, was it seen anywhere else? Could somebody have been standing by the railroad switch box? All those facts checked out. Was there somebody in the follow-up car with a, a rifle? Yes, that was Agent George Hickey with the Secret Service. He had an AR-15 in the follow-up car. He wrote a report that he took it out as they passed through Dealey Plaza. Ed said that there was a police officer on top of the railroad trestle over Stemmons Freeway. We got the Dallas Police Parade documents that the chief of police put together for the Warren Commission. It shows police officer Earl Brown was stationed on top of the railroad trestle. Now, how would Ed Hoffman know any of those things if he wasn't there? I mean, he, he could not have just guessed that that was going to be there. He talked about the puff of smoke. There was Sam Holland. Sam Holland was one of the 18 men on top of the triple overpass. He said, we all saw the smoke drift out from the fence. How did Ed Hoffman see smoke? He didn't know Sam Holland or any of those workers on top of the railroad overpass, so he probably saw the same thing they did. How did he know there was a police officer on top of the triple overpass? There were two officers stationed there, Officer Foster and Officer White. They were on top of the overpass. Ed said that the officer on the triple overpass was standing behind the men on the overpass, and he said the guy, the officer had a white hat, and he was taller than everybody else. Well, the reason he was taller is he's standing on a railroad little switch box, and he had a white hat because he's, Officer Foster was assigned to the traffic unit. So all those things support Ed's story that he was there. And as an investigator, we all think that we know how to investigate, but I did it for a living. 
and you take all the information that a, that a witness will give you and you cooperate it independently, everything he said was true. You know, his story makes sense. Personally, I think he's the most credible witness I've ever talked to in this case. I think there was somebody shooting from behind the fence. If I was going to do it from a tactical standpoint, I would put somebody there, put him in a uniform or something that would look like he belongs there. The Rambler wagon that Ed saw pull into the parking lot, that was seen by five other witnesses. I think that might have been a getaway car. The man who fired the rifle, but then to avoid holding evidence, he got rid of it. And so now you have a security guy, kind of a helper, standing by the railroad switch box, you know, your cleanup guy. He's the guy that gets rid of the evidence. Tactically, it looks like it would all fit. You know, this is not something that was thought up overnight. This was a well-planned, well-executed assassination. So you had to have, you know, contingency plans. I don't think that the man who carried the rifle and threw it to the man in the coveralls was expecting to be observed. But when he had somebody got the drop on him, basically, he had something to show. I'm really supposed to be here. It's okay. I'm the security guy. Well, Joe Marshall Smith, the officer that confronted this man, when he testified to the Warren Commission, he said there was a guy back there when I got there. He was in suit. He had credentials that said he was Secret Service. He says, unfortunately, I didn't get his name, but he says he appeared to be okay to me. And then he walked off looking for other witnesses. Well, that goes exactly what Ed said. He said the guy pointed a gun at him, he showed him something, and he walked away. So you got backup as far as, you know, what do I do if I get caught? Here's what I do. I don't have any weapons with me. Nobody's going to suspect me. You know, people have always asked us whenever we do a lecture, well, how come all those people are running up there? What the government's contention was that they were getting out of the line of fire. Well, that that's ludicrous. You wouldn't run at a 90-degree angle to the shooter. You would run away from the shooter. But all these people running up the hill because that's where the sounds came from. They thought maybe we'll get the guy. Now, you got to remember this. Texas mentality. I mean, there, you know, hey, there's a guy, there's a bad guy up there. Let's all go. In fact, one of the witnesses that we talked to and grew to be pretty good friends with was Malcolm Summers. He was standing on the south side of the Elm Street and real close to United Press photographer James Alkins. And he says after the shots were fired, he's, and you can see it in the Zach Ruder film where Malcolm is down on the ground on his, on his backside. He said the shot sounded like it came from across the street. He says, I didn't know which way to go, if I was in the line of fire or not. And he said, then I saw all those people running. He says, I got up and ran across the street with them. And he said, by the time he got to the second set of steps, the landing up there, he said there was a man that came out from behind the fence. There was a police officer up there, a uniformed police officer, and a guy with a raincoat over his arm and a white Stetson hat. And he thought, well, maybe that must be a cop. And Malcolm's told us on more than one occasion, he said, when he got to the top of those steps and he saw that guy coming out behind the fence, he said, I could see the barrel of a handgun underneath this raincoat that he had over his arm. And he said, the guy said to everybody in the area or coming up the steps, he says, y'all don't want to come up here. You could all get shot. Now, that guy has never been identified and no officer of the Dallas police or the Dallas sheriff or the Secret Service or the FBI was on the ground that quickly. So whoever it was, was armed and had the appearance of maybe a Dallas detective, a Dallas homicide detective, but nobody was there except civilians. So whoever that guy was, you know, that's part of the team. You confuse everybody. Nobody knows who the bad guy is. And cops show up. They don't know who they're looking for. They're looking for a guy with a rifle. Well, this guy's got no rifle. Maybe he showed him identification or something. I don't know.
Given the explosiveness of his testimony, Ed Hoffman's credibility becomes a huge issue for a lot of Warren Report defenders, but certainly not for me. Ed Hoffman had no reason to lie. Warren Report defenders have the same answer for any witness who makes explosive claims that support conspiracy. They do it for fame, notoriety, and money. I think that can be true for some witnesses, but there is no way it's true for all witnesses whose testimony supports conspiracy. It seems to me like there's a lot more to lose from coming forward, like the definite loss of credibility if you're wrong, and potentially death if you're right, and that's another podcast in itself. Ed Hoffman did make money off his story. He's just a good man who saw a terrible thing happen and wanted to tell the truth. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that for many years the last person alive who saw a shooter on the grassy knoll was a deaf mute. Next time on The End of Innocence, the JFK Assassination, we'll continue to look at the Dealey Paisa witnesses. We'll hear from Sam Holland, Richard Dodd, and James Simmons. They were railroad workers who had a good vantage point to see the school book depository and the grassy knoll at the time of the shooting. And they also saw smoke coming from underneath the trees on the grassy knoll, just like Ed Hoffman. We'll also hear from Bill and Gail Newman, who fell on top of their kids and sheltered them during the shooting. And what about that Rambler station wagon that we've already heard about? You're not going to believe its story. That's all next time on The End of Innocence, the JFK assassination. You're not going to want to miss it. See you then.